0: Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Turtle.
1: And I'm Annie.
0: And this is a podcast where we bring indigenous worldviews and western worldviews into conversations about science in Indian country. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. We have a very special episode where Annie and I get to teach a class about traditional ecological knowledge because we are experts
1: in in this area.
0: hundred percent. Mm -hmm.
1: So you guys should all know that what we say is the truth. I really
0: hope you do. Yeah, don't take it with a grain of salt at all.
1: Um, So I think we're just going to do a quick introduction about just kind of what we do. Um, So my name is Annie Sorrell. Um, Like Neil said earlier, we're in kind of a unique program. Um, So currently I'm focusing on how uh, my people's aromatic plants uh, play into reconnecting to land and healing historic traumas Um, and... Lija, our turtle is doing something very different, than me.
0: Yeah, I think that's kind of one of the beauties of our program is we get to do some really interesting stuff that you—I never would have thought that I would be doing it as a scientist. And my particular study area or my research interests are in indicators. So, is anybody familiar with indicators for like restoration projects, like soil health or ecological integrity, or these other kind of words that may have been thrown at you in some of these classes? Anybody know about this stuff? Raise your hand if you do. A little? Well, I saw a bunch of these. Anybody really know it? Not really? Well, that's not uncommon, especially for cultural indicators. This is an area of research that hasn't really gotten much attention. And I'm particularly interested in linking biophysical indicators like soil health or water quality with cultural indicators like value systems and specific management practices from an area and like Annie said they're they're pretty different but in a lot of ways they complement each other because in a lot of ways when we go to these places one of the first things we pick up on is a smell and I never would have thought that you could research smells like the way Annie's researching them.
1: Yeah I, I think of smells a lot differently now for the last two years than I think I ever have thought about smells before. Um, and learned a lot about it. And and really, that only works if people understand the cultural indicators that are important to people. And so, yeah, they both tie two and two together and they go hand in hand and, and you really can't... We focus a lot on worldviews and kind of seeing with both lenses, so really focusing on your science side, but really focusing on your cultural side as well and really focusing in... I know, you know he doesn't like the word integrating, but really integrating both into a way that can fully grasp a research project that we had never done in undergrad before.
0: And, yeah, here you see our logo where we totally integrated Western science with Indigenous science. And got to thank Annie for that because... I made it. Yeah, she's the one that made that. <laughs> and I really like the logo because it really captures a lot about our, the theme of our show, which is Indian science, or Indigenous science is another way you could say it, and... It's a little I think it's a little bit goofy in, in some ways. It's a dream catcher with, with like electrons swirling around and it reminds me of that show The Big Bang Theory. Does anybody like that show? Nobody likes that show? Oh my god. Well, I'm not gonna judge you too harshly. If you I like, like it, the show. so don't worry. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter, we all got our own tastes. And so that's just the logo. But our show really is about a lot of of what we're going to be talking about today, how science and spirituality can meet, and how restoration methodologies can shift to a more indigenous type of research agenda, which we will talk about here in a little bit. And, okay, so, here, you just here the for, you the okay,
1: the
0: so we, we kind of already talked about this, and that's weird, I thought that it. Okay, so you already know who we are. So traditional ecological knowledge. Does anybody have an idea what that is?
1: I See heads nodding. So you guys can answer.
0: Go ahead and give me your definition. How would you define traditional ecological knowledge? And if you'd like to say it on the mic, you're more than welcome to. If not, I'll probably just repeat your question or what you say into the mic. I'll we'll make that. Well,
1: I've all done the reading.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know you got. You should all be experts on TEK right now. You've read Martinez. You've read Burkus, right? Right. Right.
1: <laughs> Anything? Nobody? What about that corner over there?
0: Any grad students want to I'll call people out? out
1: if I need to. Okay.
0: Dobby, I feel like you should define it for us. I need to like to talk. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You're lying. Of course, you like to talk.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Well,
0: my version of defining it would be: um, it's
1: not necessarily the opposite of um, Western science; is more complementary, and it's about. Um, Pass down knowledge from your ancestors and about how we interact with the world around us.
0: So it's they're not opposite; they're complementary, and that it's passed down, and it's about observing the world around us. Okay. Does anybody else have anything to add, or yeah? As opposed to Western science, it seems to be much more qualitative as opposed to quantitative. Okay, so more more on the qualitative end of things. All right, and you know what? I should have done this in the very beginning, and we meant to. But if uh, if anybody doesn't want to be a part of the recording, you feel you should be free to leave because we don't want to force you into being on our show or anything like that. So. I, and I meant to touch base with Neil about this, about whether or not you get credit and how that works for your grade, and so, it just in my opinion, if you don't want to be on the recording, feel free to head out now, and I don't want to, like, step on Neil's toes or anything, but that's just my feelings on it. And if you do want to be on a recording, that's awesome. Go ahead and stick around, and I'm going to turn this mic so later we can go and fix the audio, and anybody that speaks up, you should be you should be. You should come through nice and clear uh, once we actually release it on a podcast episode. Alright, so it's more qualitative than quantitative and it's passed down. Did you say something about generations that it's passed down from one generation to the other?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. For sure. Is there anything else that anybody could think of? Um, It is
1: it focuses largely on relationships rather than trying to divide everything
0: up into pieces and boxes. Mm. That's holistic. Yeah. Well, each I would say each of you are right. You each touched on a part of it, and there's specific definitions, like what Berkus gives, and also Martinez and other ones, like Dan Wildcat, and there's actually quite a few definitions out there floating around about traditional ecological knowledge. That's why we call it indigenous knowledge and stuff. (laughs) Because really, when we're back home and growing up, I never even knew what TEK, I never even heard that phrase, but we practiced it. I remember learning how to harvest berries correctly from my grandma and how to do it so you don't get eaten by bears and there's all these different things built into it. She just didn't say be careful because bears are out there. She, there's actually a way that you carry yourself out in the forest that helps you stay away from bad situations. It's not that you're looking to avoid the situation. It's more like you're living your life and walking in a certain way. You're conducting yourself in a certain way. So it's more focused on your responsibility than on avoiding any kind of thing out in the world. And that's where I feel like The Western science definition and the indigenous science definition of TEK really differ is the action-oriented part of it. Whereas TEK, as far as the Western science definition goes, is more reactionary. It's meant to fix a problem or something. Whereas in indigenous, the way I see it, in, in an indigenous way, it's more about just how you live your life. And you're responsible to do that the best way you can. And that's it. It's actually really simple. With that being said, should we give them some definitions?
1: Yeah. Um, So we made a little outline for you guys with handouts that kind of goes over a little bit what we're going to talk about today. Um, So I'm just going to read the generic... Burkus um, one, just so you guys kind of have understanding of what we're going to talk about. Um, so T. K. Our traditional ecological knowledge is an accumulating body of knowledge, practice, and belief, evolving by adaptive processes and handed down through practice. Oh, through generations by cultural transmission and about the relationship of living things, human and non-living, um, with one another and with the environment. And I think that it's really important that you include humans and non-humans. Because I think science really kind of separates there where uh, humans end up being kind of the relationships of humans versus relationships of plants in humans or the sun and humans or really kind of anything rocks and humans. I think that's really important to understand that there is a relationship of the whole entire turtle island.
0: Yeah, the relationality and the holistic nature of how TEK actually is gained and how it's used in the world is very, very just holistic. It's almost the opposite of what science, ecological knowledge can offer. It's, it's not, not reductive and it's not generalizable. But what I've begun to recognize is that some of the principles that underlie the knowledge, where, how it's gained, those can be generalizable and can be ways that we can agree cross-culturally are the principles and the value systems those are the types of things we can share not necessarily the techniques and the words and definitions but the principles that underlie the the actual development of these ways of knowing and to we wanted to show you this diagram here because it shows this is a diagram from Berkus, and it was he was specifically talking about how indigenous knowledge is nested within these systems, how worldview encompasses everything. And at the very last, the more micro-scale or the more micro-resolution, where you're looking at fine details, that's the knowledge comes out of that. The actual TEK is nested within all these different systems. What I, When I first saw this, I realized, wait a minute, aren't all knowledge systems and all institutions nested within a worldview? This isn't exclusive to indigenous people. This model, uh, you can apply it to pretty much any culture. As far as I know, all humans operate off of worldview. This is a fairly well-established thing in psychology that worldview and philosophy go together. And philosophy is like a means to develop a worldview. And how there's all these different components of it, including words like axiology, epistemology, and ontology. Is anybody familiar with those? Terms? Except the grad students? You're you're not alone. I don't think I knew about it until last year.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well I mean I,
0: I think I heard a word I think I'd heard ontology before. But until we started to get take some of these classes and really dive into the nature of knowing, I don't think either one of us really
1: <laughs> I still knew what that stuff was all don't about. Understand it, so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they understand
0: that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially the, the mixture between ontology and epistemology. It's very challenging to kind of separate those two and try to understand the fundamentals of how, they, how scientists understand them. And so at the very bottom of this first page, we, there's a little bit on worldview and that philosophy is what builds a worldview. And that the, within a worldview, we have all these nested systems. And out of these nested systems arises the knowledge and each worldview is composed of around six questions. And there's a seventh, but uh, if, you really, if you're curious about that, you can look at this article from Vidal, 2008. And, but generally speaking, the science on this talks about how there's six worldview questions, and then there's the, the answers to those questions are the components of your worldview. And so if you're able to answer these questions, then you will eventually have all the components of a worldview. The weird part is, Is science is only good at answering one, two, and three. So it's good with ontological questions, it's good at explaining stuff, and it's good at predicting. But the scientific worldview is not very good at answering moral questions, or about action, how we're supposed to live our lives, or about what's true and false, the nature of truth versus false. Western science, or Science isn't necessarily that equipped to deal with these kinds of questions. And so in this, this article, Vidal really dives into that and talks about how different worldviews are better at answering different questions and getting different types of knowledge. And with that being said, and there's a reason Annie kind of laughed when I decided not to say Western science, that's a very problematic word, Western. Applying Western to science for all science doesn't make any sense. Not historically, not geographically, not, not even fundamentally as far as math is concerned. That's an Arabic system that we're using. So Western science, that phrase itself, is problematic. Does any, and we've struggled a bunch trying to figure out what else we would say. Well, what else, what else would you call it? I mean, in a way, we want to be able to differentiate between indigenous science and science the way we do it in the, the academy, what would your ideas, does anybody have an idea of what a better word than Western would be to apply to science? More descriptive. Modern
1: science? Modern, modern science, yeah. No one has ever said that. Really? I don't think we've ever talked about I've been modern. saying
0: modern, that's what I, just, you and I agree, and that's the only best one I
1: could come up with was modern science. I swear, we have Has had that been brought up. Did they, was that brought up last year? That was not brought up. That was the first time. That was a good one, because I hadn't heard that before.
0: <laughs> I, I think it might have been like touched on here and there, but we never really talked that deeply about the problems of Western science. I know it yeah. got mentioned here and there.
1: Yeah, we've had this discussion since our first workshop last year about really kind of understanding how do you separate Indigenous science from academia. And so ours was, had always been Western science, but we ended up going to a... Uh, Indigenous conference where that was one of the first things that they talked about was why we use the words that we use And I think that when you do work with indigenous communities that it's really important that you do understand kind of the language of that community because a lot of them won't understand what you're talking about so and I had to present in front of our elders committee which is made up of 10 to 20 elders who really don't have any educational backgrounds. Some of them were in boarding schools, some of them were really kind of just living on the reservation, just doing that. Some were military people. Um, So really kind of understanding then that they don't understand what traditional ecological knowledge is, but they do understand kind of what um, like science is in general, kind of like how do you work with the land, the relationship with the land. So really kind of understanding word choice is really important when you're working with different communities. And so, it gets really confusing on word choices. And so, is there any other other than modern? I really like that one though. You have any ideas? Maybe academic science. Although I suppose that I could also imply that no one is doing anything differently inside of the academy. But it seems like I kind of like that one too. Like science that's over here. We're searching for knowledge and doing science and. And that's what we do in this particular
0: space. Yeah, because you can be an academic scientist, or you can be a private sector scientist, or you could be a community scientist, where you maybe even don't even go to college, but you you still do science in your community and you measure and monitor and do all sorts of stuff. Huh? Um, or maybe that's it, but just more specific.
1: There's a word for that when you're like a non-student. A non-student, non-student. work. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to get
0: back to you. See, there's probably a science to this too. <laughs> That's, I think a huge problem in modern science is that there are so many different disciplines and each one has a, has a depth of literature that you can read about this stuff. And so to, to be comprehensively read in modern science is extremely difficult and it's becoming more and more difficult the more publications that come out. And so I'm seeing a certain point where it's just not sustainable. the, publications and literature and publications and that being the end goal of most science is very very important and it's one of the only ways that science moves forward but at a certain point it'll get to somewhere where there are so many disciplines and so many different publications that it'll be impossible to do a comprehensive literature review on certain subjects so it's there's a lot of problems with modern science but there's a lot of benefits to it i mean we wouldn't be sitting here talking on microphones and recording ourselves live without modern science. So, at this, but at the same time, it's, it's that value system that's missing. And that's primarily what we're looking at with our research, is understanding how value systems can be brought back into modern science.
1: And so kind of going off that, when you guys think of the word traditional, do you guys think of it in present tense or past tense? Um, past. Past, past? Generally, kind of the past. And so that's kind of what's cool about what we're doing now. It's just exactly what it says. We have microphones now, but we still are engaging in our indigenous sides as well as kind of this idea of modern and kind of living in the modern world, which is a lot what we focus on is like truly how do you be indigenous in the modern world? And how do you navigate both your cultural side and your kind of 28 year old side? Yeah, your modern side, of, yeah, your, your modern side of, of really combining both and into making yourself into. Culturally educated person. I don't know. I don't know what you'd call it. Um,
0: A modern Indian.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and that's another one of the terminologies, really kind of traditional in itself. Um, Neil, we got this off of Neil's PowerPoint. Um, but but it assumes that your cultural practices is in the distant past, and it denies adaptability, um, and it's kind of doesn't talk about the resilience of indigenous communities today. Um, and I think that that is usually not at the forefront because I think that when you read a lot of textbooks as well, a lot of it is passwords, Um, a lot of it isn't including boarding schools, a lot of it isn't including reservations like today. Um, You sure, you hear about disparities that come from the reservations like poverty, um, high suicide rates, uh, diabetes, but you really truly don't understand kind of the implications that have come from modern times and really kind of how that has Structured reservations into the disparities that you see now and so traditional isn't The fact that it can adapt. It's just that our adaption is a lot different than a lot of other communities especially because while Haudenosaunee people have had colonization for I'm gonna get the date wrong I don't know 400 years 400 years um, My tribe got put onto the reservation in 18 18- Oh my god. I forgot the date. 1898. <laughs> um, and her so take. give or take. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's less than 150 years that, that we have been on the reservations and and kind of really this fast technological change of modern world, it kind of leaves indigenous people in this this kind of limbo of do I become more traditional or do I kind of stay the main line of modern world? And and so just know that it is adaptable. We are working towards it. I mean, Laja and I, Dobby, are proof that really kind of using indigenous in education is a way to give back to your community in a way that wasn't there 100 years ago. And so, I mean, that, that kind of touches base on ecological as well. Um, knowledge in itself is a very broad word. Mm,
0: yeah, then that's when you start talking about epistemology and ontology and how you actually kind of navigate the world and what you decide is valid knowledge versus what's not valid knowledge. The, we all like to think that we're really intelligent and conscious beings, but the reality is, is we're kind of just operating off of an operating system that we develop as children, and that comes from our parents and from our teachers and from people in our schools. And all of that comes from this overarching worldview that that is held from that culture. And there's no controlling that kind of stuff. You can't decide that, okay, I don't like this paradigm anymore, so let's do this other paradigm. It's really a a natural process that unfolds. And we're, in in some ways, we're kind of at the end of that. Because there's been a call to do research differently for quite a long time. At least since the early 90s, if not even longer than that. And that's where this whole thing of traditional ecological knowledge comes from. Is it's a call in science to begin validating or using other valid sources of information to be able to integrate and use in management and all sorts of different realms of science. And uh, yeah, the, the word traditional, I think, is especially problematic because it, you're in danger of looking at a culture or even your own culture as if it's under glass in a museum and then you're not supposed to touch it, you're not supposed to change it in any way, otherwise you're destroying its integrity. But that's not how, or at least my people, and I think a lot of people that Annie and I respect back home, that's not how they think about tradition or culture. We understand that it changes and it it adapts, especially when you're actually interfacing with an entirely different culture. We're giving each other stuff all the time, back and forth between the Euro-American culture that's developed here and that was brought here, and the indigenous cultures that are here. There's, there's no escaping that exchange. Is anybody familiar with nati- native pragmatism, or pragmatism, or American pragmatism? It's probably the only philosophy that, um, that's distinct to, the, to America, whereas most philosophies from in the West especially are come from Europe, and especially from the Greeks. But there is one, if you look it up, native pragmatism, And a lot of modern scholars are beginning to look at it as it wasn't just the European manifestation of philosophy here in the New World. It was actually a combination of indigenous philosophy and settler philosophy that came together. And a lot of it is founded in indigenous concepts of responsibility, self-reliance, and adaptability. So cross-cultural sharing is unavoidable, so that makes the word traditional almost useless when you're trying to understand things in a very, very uh, robust kind of way. Ecological knowledge also. So ecology, as it says here, kind of is, in a way, it's just with it baked into the word itself is this notion that we're separate from an ecosystem as if we're not a part of it. And then knowledge, that's just a very, it's very hard to understand knowledge because we all get it in different ways. And... Each different, depending on the culture that you're from, different sources of knowledge are more valid than others. So it's kind of, it's a strange combination of words to apply to something that, even just from our end of it, understanding things without knowing what TEK is is strange just by itself. Yeah. What's up? So, given that all three of
1: those words are considered problematic, what would you consider TEK then? Well, I mean, if you ask any elder if they're a scientist, what's their answer? usually, no. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you talk to people who are your elders who have been on the land where you are, I think that what they have is something that they can't define themselves. Um, I don't know what you would call it. Um, I think it's ends up being, like, wisdom in the end is what generally people say, or I don't know, what would you call it? Um, Adaptable wisdom, almost. Yeah, it's because, I mean, I think that I mean, Leja has says this all the time, that, that some of the f- first scientists in Turtle Island were native people who really kind of adapted and learned through the land, and I mean that, that can be shown with the western word like biophilia, Um, which is kind of loving to the land or even if you go to Japan where they have, uh, oh my gosh uh, um, uh, it's like outdoor bathing, forest bathing bathing. (laughs) yeah, where they literally give you time of the day just to be out in the forest which is biophilia, it's like really remembering that you get out with the land or I have a very very high fear of snakes Um, so snakes, spiders, inherently everybody kind of has some kind of furiness from them because in our past we may have an ancestor that was killed from it and we learned like hey don't go touching that snake or if that one was okay it's like okay well this snake does this like bull snakes eat rattlesnakes where I'm from so we leave bull snakes alone Um, and so I think that when you adapt from the land and when you have something like TEK which is passed down through the generations it ends up becoming a generational wisdom that that kind of really is at the heart of the people on that land and it's a shared learning it's community learning it's not even individual families Um, it's really a communal style approach that and like turtle was saying it's, it's it's not just within your community but uh being salish we have Oh, I know this, 23 interior bands, and then we also separated from Coastal Salish um, around 2,000 years ago. Um, And if you look at the interior Salish, the dialect is somewhat similar. Um, So there's 23 bands of Salish that speak somewhat similar dialects, and at that point, they span Canada, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, yeah. Um, and it kind of really all of this area, and so you end up learning multiple different ecosystems, multiple biomes. Uh, you We used to trade uh, bitter root and camas for salmon. Um, you end up doing a lot of stuff. I work with the Onondaga ladies at the farm, so I'm taking the knowledge that I learned from them and coming back to my people and teaching them what I'm learning here. Um, it's like a cross-continental generational wisdom. Uh, you know, it it's it's it spans the whole Turtle Island.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like these words, traditional, ecological, and knowledge, are they're they're problematic because we're trying to translate these concepts to an entirely different culture, an entirely different group of people. So back home, I've some actually quite a few people that I've talked to. I, I had to describe what ecology meant, or what framework meant. And so it's really a matter of just becoming more multilingual as a scientist. So where the words traditional ecological knowledge, they're problematic, but they're useful for when you're trying to publish your work and trying to communicate to another scientist that doesn't have any cultural context about where you did your work at all. So... The, I think the only way to address that issue is to actually have the cultural context written into your literature. Whatever publication you put out, actually put in there, but this is what the people call it. This is what they call it in this area. This is These are the words that they use, and it seems like some, some authors are pretty good at doing that. I don't really see any other way around it because we got to use a, a, some phrase at some point in order to be to be able to communicate across different disciplines and across different languages. It's just kind of like Latin names. That's why they're so useful is everybody agrees on that same one. So this term might, has, might change and there's, been, there's other ones like traditional eco, ecological knowledge and wisdom and indigenous knowledge systems. So there's variations on it and I guess it's... I don't know if it'll ever come down to just one (laughs) phrase. It doesn't seem like things in ecology do that that often until it has something to to do with uh, some form of hard science like chemistry or physics. Then they really narrow down a terminology and how it gets used. With stuff like this, though, I think it's always going to be different depending on what country you're in and what community that you're going to work with. Do you
1: agree? Yeah. That just made me think about a whole other thing that I want to talk about (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we shouldn't talk about because we're going to be sidetracked. That was a good question, though, because I I struggle a lot. Um, My dad is a uh, Vietnam vet, and so trying to talk to him about any of the science that I have here, uh, he just nods his head and is agreeable, but he doesn't really fully understand it. And so a random word, like decolonization, he didn't understand what that meant. And I was like, how, how do you not know what decolonization is, Dad? And uh, and so, I mean, I think it's just like little word choices that, that you really kind of have to... It's a lot more pressure as you, as a student and as a researcher, um, because it really kind of makes you focus on the importance of the community or the people that you're working with. Um, because I used to do iron ferry work with water cleaning, and so didn't have to talk to anybody about that and so now where I'm like interacting with my community I'm using all these big words and they're just like I don't understand like and then and then they stop listening to you at that point especially elders like they'll just stop listening or they get caught on one word and they're like oh I have a story for you and you kind of break into a 30 minute story of of like okay well now I know that your wife uses this plant for this like that's really good to know but like that's not kind of what I'm presenting about right now and so I think word choice ends up being Extremely important with what you do, and you should recommend the book. What book? The book that you're making me read.
0: I'm making you read a book. The
1: the writing the word. The
0: oh word choices. yeah, there's a really good book about writing, and it's geared towards graduate students. But it's such a short, easy read. I recommend it to as many people as can. It's called How to Write a Lot, and there's a chapter in there it's simply named Use Good Words, and. It, that is applicable to anywhere you go in your life even if you don't work with indigenous communities being aware of who you're talking to and meeting them where they're at there's it's very very difficult to actually overstate how important that is and that's a part of what we're talking about is that challenge of having to meet these elders where they're at with their education and their use their use of words and not trying to make it their responsibility to learn our words but it's our responsibility to learn how to change our words to be more precise in our communication with that particular person or group of people. That doesn't mean you're going to compromise your scientific integrity, but it's a bigger challenge because you have to maintain your scientific accuracy and descriptiveness while you're translating into different words, which can be very, very tough on the spot, especially when you're presenting to people you have a lot of respect for, and that basically can determine whether or not your research happens or not. So there's a lot of pressure in it, but... The benefits are, it's kind of like, what's that old, how's that old saying go? Um, with a big risk comes a big reward? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because you could definitely mess it up <laughs> and offend some people, but yeah. it's worth it to try. Because over time, you just, you get better and better at communicating the ideas that are up here into words that make sense to the people you're trying to get through to. And the reality is, is it's just practical. If you actually want to do a good job and you want your work to be taken seriously and you want to be listened to, why not change your words? That's my opinion on it.
1: Is anybody planning on working in indigenous communities or kind of doing policies that may affect indigenous communities in here? That little section. Anybody else? So I mean, does is it, so does everybody understand what indigenous ally is? Yeah.
0: Or maybe we could start with this. Why did you decide to take this class? Anybody? Anybody, you can answer, it doesn't even have to be.
1: It <laughs> interesting, and I was interested in, in this issue because I took Me during the summer. I thought this would be an interesting course to try.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool, that's the perfect reason to take a course. It's interesting.
1: And uh, I think I learned more about policy. Um, I took this class last year. Um, and so I think that I learned a lot more about policy history than I think I knew from my high school which is really crazy because I was in a reservation school that they probably should learn Native history well. But um, So I mean, I think that it it touches on the basics of of really kind of how important it is to be an Indigenous ally um, and understanding uh, the three R's that we kind of use, but there are multiple R's. Um, Does anybody know the three R's? Not that side. Um, So, it's respect, responsibility, and reciprocity, Um, and so really kind of understanding those three. uh, We do relevance, and we do uh, relationship, Um, you you can add a lot of ours, or different words in general, but I think understanding those three in moving forward with your current research or kind of current notions of your own life, I think are really important to kind of understanding why Indigenous people are fighting so hard for the issues that they are currently fighting.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot that you're going to cover in this class, from policy to value systems to TEK to the to specific laws, all the way to like specific case studies with different environmental issues that have occurred in Indian country. And so, if some of it doesn't, if some of it kind of gets lost, don't feel bad because there's a lot to the history and the development of where we're at now with. Not just in indigenous cultures, but American culture. The, American culture is a direct product of that engagement with indigenous people here. And vice versa, our cultures now are a direct product of that integ- uh, integration. Even though I kind of don't like that word, there's no avoiding that fact that we've been integrated for centuries, especially here in the East. There's a lot of value in understanding that we're not isolated events not as individuals, and not as communities, not as entire societies. It's weird. It's like humans are this crazy super organism that likes to think we're individuals, but we're really not. We're, we go crazy when we don't, and we need each other. So I, it's really important to remember that this, the cross-cultural sharing is always happening. And I'm not sure what, where I was going with that. I, I'm pretty sure I had a point in there, but now that I'm I'm just talking and rambling, I think my main point was probably there's a lot to cover. So if this isn't an area that you're going to go down into specifically with your work, it's still going to be valuable to understand these issues. Because no matter where you're at, there's a native group of people that call that place home. And if you know a little bit about their culture, or if you know a little bit about how they see the world, it's going to help you in your own research and in your own life in more ways than you can really measure. So I think that's probably one of the biggest benefits I see for this class, for, for all students. So yeah, take stock and I don't want to tell you to feel a certain way, but I know I'd be grateful if I had this opportunity to learn from Neil and to be able to learn from people like Robin. And I wasn't an an Indian person, an indigenous person, a native person, a Native American, Amskapi Pikani, Nitsitapi. I mean, names, it's it's a really weird situation for us because most of us speak English as a first language, but most of us also know our traditional languages also in conjunction with that. And so there's this constant kind of back and forth misunderstanding within each of us to where we fit in this whole cycle of things. And that's kind of where we, why we decided to start the show, is we recognized there's a lot of problems with being indigenous in the modern world, and we didn't even know if it was possible or not at one point. We thought, hmm, maybe we're not even indigenous anymore. <laughs> I don't even know. I think we finally, we've come to the conclusion that it is possible, and in fact, you can thrive as an indigenous person in the modern world.
1: Yeah, I uh, kind of had a big revelation in my own research uh, a couple weeks ago with the meeting with Robin um, on the fact that I never really understood why I personally was doing my research. I understood the importance of the research that I needed to do. Um, I think losing plant knowledge is, is never good for any kind of community itself, but what I came to realize was that learning from Neil and Robin and Angie and the ladies at the farm that I work with and and Dobby and kind of all these other great people at the center, Tusha, that I think that you end up realizing that what you bring back to the community is something that is irreplaceable because you learn a lot of crazy things about yourself and kind of your life and I think that I wanted to prove to my community now that going to school isn't a negative thing. Um, education is seen as not a good thing because you're you're, you're delving away from your community, you're delving away from um, your own culture itself, and I think that Leja and I are 2,000 miles away from our homelands, that uh, it really kind of separates you from your people. Um, and so being here in itself is my own sovereignty because I get to learn from these people and I get to bring it back to my community and I get to have a forest garden, potentially. Uh, you know, I, I learn all this stuff that I wouldn't have learned and then what then does that lead to my healing, to myself, to the land, but then also what does that make me as a scientist if I'm not able to produce something back to my community? So that's kind of what my research has turned into um, and I think that we're gonna, I think we should skip to this one.
0: Well, actually, uh, this next diagram that we're going to put up here is one of science, modern science's ways of trying to re-indigenize or be indigenous in the modern world. That's kind of how I see this. And this is, I actually have never seen this before Annie was showing me.
1: I kidnapped it off of the EPA
0: workshop. Yeah, I like it. And in a lot of ways, it, it does what we're trying to do very poorly with square tables. So it's basically the same thing, but with circles, and I like Venn diagrams. (laughs) So here is in the middle, especially if you focus on what it says there in the middle, that that is really the area where, as an indigenous person, you can practice some of your ways in science, and vice versa, that scientists who may feel like they didn't have a cultural connection or a cultural context before, it gives them that cultural connection and context. And then you could take these basic principles lined up in the middle and bring that to wherever you go. And it'll change and it'll mold and it'll take on a different form depending on what culture and what ecosystem that you're working in. But the point is, is that the principles are being, are carrying through things like the respect and reciprocity and responsibility are really important. And he was talking about the like four or five R's, like relationship or relevance but what I realized after kind of doing some thought experiments on this is that relevance is already in there. It's that respect. You're respecting that place, you're respecting those people, and so you're going to make it relevant for whoever it is that you're working with. And then relationship, I think all three of those R's is all about rebuilding relationships. It's very difficult to have any kind of relationship with a plant or a person if you don't respect each other, or if you're not giving back, if it's not a two-way situation or if somehow, somewhere along the way, you're not holding up your end of the responsibility in that relationship, it's going to fall apart one way or another. So I see all three of those R's as being fundamental to having a healthy relationship. And that's really what biocultural restoration is aiming to do, is to repair that relationship through the application of those three R's in management and restoration. And this table just... I think it really nicely encapsulates one of the expressions of being indigenous in the modern world. And interestingly enough, it probably wasn't even a native person that came up with this. Or was it? Do you know?
1: Because
0: I know the one we just showed from Berkus, that guy's not indigenous. But he's able to understand things enough to be able to create really cool diagrams that can communicate these principles.
1: And um, there's also a lot of non-Indigenous people uh, who have done a lot of amazing work with Indigenous communities. Um, Keith Basso works a lot with Apache on connecting to place names. Um, Nancy Turner works a lot with uh, tribes, uh, First Nations in Canada with their ethnobotany work. Um, So you do have the potential to do it just because you're not Indigenous. Um, You you do have the potential to really kind of help Indigenous people achieve their own Mm self-determination.
0: And here's another one from Linda Smith. She wrote a book back in the 90s, and in a book she has this really cool diagram. And this is what she calls an indigenous research agenda. And for my research, this is, I'm following some of these principles and creating a research agenda that's specific to the Flathead area. But the whole idea is to do it in a cooperative way, not in a way where I'm just coming in with this agenda or this framework and then giving it to people and saying, hey, this is how we're going to do research, but actually developing it with the community in a back and forth, fully reciprocal way. And that's really, really hard to do because not everybody wants to email you back right away or uh, not everybody wants to read that thing you sent them in the time that you think that they should read it. So... It's, it's tough, but it's worth it because people tend to tell you things and share in a way that they wouldn't have if you didn't do it that way. And so here's the, the, this is the agenda, but this is based off of Maori values. And they a lot of their creation story and a lot of their stories have to do with the ocean and tides. And so that's how they've structured this, was kind of based off of that tidal model where in the middle is there self-determination, and as you move outward, you get these other principles arriving, but the whole intent is that it goes back in again. So it's like a breathing, living, moving system, is the way I understand it. How it, it all leads to self-determination, but that self-determination echoes outward into these other areas like decolonization and mobilization. And then the healing... That's something that I didn't really consider until relatively recently, that that's really what we're doing with restoration, is we're trying to heal something. And I hear the words like repair or restore a lot, but there's not much emotional connection with those kinds of words. But healing, that has a much more powerful emotional impact. But as a scientist, you have to pair that with other things to make sure that you're not just kind of blandly saying, oh, we're healing the land and then start meditating together but actually make it real and practical and something that you can use with restorationists and something you can use with an actual framework of like management practices wherever you, you happen to do your work at. Did any, has anybody seen Linda Smith's or read Linda Smith's book yet? Anybody in here? How about you all? On it. Yeah, It's a good book I really like it a lot, and she's a cool lady. I wish I would have had the chance to meet her. And yeah. And you met her, right? I
1: did. I was uh, lucky enough that I was able to go to a conference where um, she had, she was one of the presenters at 8 a.m. in the morning, um, so I really tried hard to, to make it there. Um, but one the thing that I took out of her talk the most was understanding what energy communities are putting towards things. Um, so it's, it's not you going in and making up this thing, but if you understand the, what the tribe is putting their energy towards. So a lot of my tribe now is suicide awareness and language revitalization. So if you understand that, then you can understand that that's what the community is working towards. And so how can I help that? that energy to move forward and that's kind of what I got out of her talk the most and I think that that kind of helped me realize that I needed to switch gears on my own research and and focus towards what I noticed that my community is needing and and we're kind of in this survival phase right now of, of really kind of um having huge disparities that are that are at our forefront um like any typical uh reservation life we have a very very high suicide rate and uh So kind of coping with that and and something that's particularly different about indigenous communities is that when someone dies, the whole community hurts. It's not just the family, it's not just the the person, but it's the whole family, it's the whole community. So when you have, oh man, I don't know the exact number. I think there's 4,000 tribal members that still live on the reservation. Um, We have cluster suicides that I think within...
0: I'm going to get it wrong.
1: How long was it? 20, 20 plus suicides in six months?
0: When? Like recent, in the last six months? Or, no. Because like, it's been going it's on like for year. about three
1: yeah. years now. Well, uh, the cluster. Yeah. So it was about six months where we had 20 suicides. Um, In a community that is uh, extremely small like mine is, it, it's very detrimental. And it kind of stops you from, from recovering and then development and, and moving to self-determination. And so really... Understanding that everything has to, to be in this cycle, the cyclical cycle, to really make yourself culturally healed, um, reconnecting to land, um, being self-determined, being sovereign. Um, a lot of people that I talk with have different ideas of what sovereignty is. I know Neil really likes the idea of giving land back, that, that Indigenous people have sovereign land. Um, when I go to Onondaga, theirs is you can only be sovereign if you are able to feed your people. And I, so I think that really kind of understanding different sovereignty is, is important because I can't even think of what my sovereignty for my tribe is right now because we are um, battling a lot of disparities and in and, and itself is daunting to see this thing that you want and no, not knowing how to fix it. And I think that that really pulls into these ethical research protocols that, that are at the bottom and really kind of switching your gears if you're going to work with communities that that aren't even they don't have to be indigenous but if if they've been on that land for a year for hundreds of years for 20 years they understand how that land works farmers are great examples of that ranchers are great examples they've been on that land for a long time they understand how that land works and talking to them is going to have to be in a way that you really kind of have respect not only for the people but you have respect for the land that those people live on and then you a lot of it is presenting face-to-face, which, um, like like was mentioned earlier, it, it's a qualitative field. It's a lot of social science, it's a lot of being in the community, it's a lot of understanding the difference between insider and outsider, and really kind of understanding how the community itself plays a role. Um, you can look at Adirondacks has their own community and how they work. Um, Haudenosaunee have their own and you guys have a great opportunity here and I highly suggest that you take advantage of it because Haudenosaunee is something that I've never seen before. They're unlike any other um, tribal nation in the country, in Turtle Island, probably in the world. And what they have here is extraordinary. So I hope that you guys really, really take advantage of what Neil's teaching you um, because we're all striving to be what they are here. Um, We really want our own sovereignty and Haudenosaunee are they're great cuz they have their sovereignty mm-hmm. and and what they do is is a hope that all of us i think dobby can agree that our and that our nations want to be at at some point. So i really hope that out of all of this at the end of the year that that you understand how important what neil is teaching, how important that is. Okay. Um so you look and you listen and then you speak. Um, that's really important Uh, don't speak before you really understand the situation that's at hand Um, I've caught myself in trouble a lot of times at ceremony where I should not have spoken uh, when I did or at an elders meeting where you just kind of sit in the back and you don't say anything Um, it's really important to understand cultural traditions um, customs Uh, we really don't give money Um, Instead, we like gifts. Um, You give a gift um, for someone for allowing them to kind of be there in their presence and kind of learning from them. Um, So being generous isn't about money. Uh, Being generous is about respecting their time, respecting your time, um, respecting that they're taking a lot of time out of their day, even if you don't think that it's busy. Um, I've realized that a 73-year-old man is way busier than I am and he's retired. Um, So I think that our idea of of understanding time is very different person to person. Um, Be cautious always. Uh, Don't, if you feel like you're about to overstep your boundary, again, stop, evaluate, don't be afraid to talk to people. Um, Really kind of understand how communities work involves you stepping forward or you asking questions, which I struggle with as well because I never really understood my culture until probably 3 or 4 years ago when i really kind of took it upon myself to understand what my culture meant to me and it's scary talking to elders because you never know what their reaction is going to be um so don't trample over the mana of the people and you know mana more than i do we've actually not talked really
0: actually I, uh, <laughs> I, I my depth of knowledge on mana is about as it's a, I have Google knowledge on it that's about as far as I know from my interpretation it's kind of like what we'd maybe say spirit don't tra- trample on people's spirit or their energy don't trample on their ego so and then, yeah, like, I'm not know. totally sure what that means Does anybody else is anybody? has anybody done any work with Maori people and know, really know in depth what ma- mana means didn't think so
1: (laughs) yeah I I think I agree this is kind of your spirituality spirit
0: so the way I interpret that is don't be belligerent don't just go through with I mean confidence is good to have but if you're maintaining that confidence at the expense of other people and their well being then it's not really confidence it's arrogance So that's a fine line, and that's what I think that number six is talking about. And And number seven is don't flaunt your knowledge. And that's kind of what I think what I was talking about earlier with the words, going in and saying, I would like to create a reciprocal restoration framework because uh, the cultural indicators are, we can successfully link them with biophysical indicators, and if we use traditional ecological knowledge in our modeling, and I get lost probably in the first couple words, and in a way, it's me flaunting my knowledge, me not honoring their knowledge and how their knowledge is different from my knowledge. And that's that's how I interpret that one. Is that kind of... Yeah, no. Yeah. And there's some cool Maori words that go with this, as well as a little more... So these are just the interpretations of Maori words. So I, I, again, I highly recommend this book, and just to, for your own understanding of this movement, because... It's going to happen, and it's one of those paradigm shifts that we're lucky enough to be living through, but nobody really has control over it. And that's the weird thing and kind of scary thing about paradigm shifts, is there's no way to systematically control their, their trajectory. And anybody that's ever tried typically failed miserably and got all sorts of things that they didn't expect. And that's a whole other conversation. So with that being said, I wanted to just kind of wrap, bring this back around to T.E.K. So we were supposed to teach you about T.E.K., but we talked about all sorts of different things. And that is, I think, probably a really good lesson about T.E.K. Yeah. <laughs> that it's holistic. <laughs> I mean, there's, no getting, there's no getting around talking about other subjects when you're talking about T.E.K., because it inherently involves other disciplines, other cultures, and... That cross-cultural, cross-linguistic, cross-disciplinary type of research, that kind of work, it's unavoidable if you actually want to get in the realms of TEK, simply because the way TEK is actually gained is cross, all those words. It's cross-everything, basically. It's holistic, and thats it's hard to understate how important understanding the holistic nature of indigenous worldviews is because it really does result in some very different interpretations and some very different analytical frameworks for the data that... You could be looking at, at the exact same data, but through a traditional ecological lens, you would interpret that data very differently than you would through a scientific ecological lens, where, with, say, for example, you could be looking at soil chemistry. Through a traditional ecological knowledge lens, that would automatically be thinking about what that means for the soil microbiome and what that microbiome means for the plant community and how that's going to play out with the wildlife and never actually excluding any of those measures from your analysis. Whereas to understand the soil chemistry, Western science goes in and very specifically looks at the chemical composition of the soil and understands ratios and understands can look at all sorts of different indicators for what that soil's health is and and that's useful it's very useful so the idea i'm getting at here is that traditional ecological knowledge is an attempt to bring holistic measurements and holistic analysis to restoration ecology and in a way hopefully that's going to also honor the people that gave this knowledge and give something back to them and that's where biocultural restoration comes up. And we're trying, we're, we're trying to figure it out, but it's really tough and really, really confusing. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much all we had for you guys. So if anybody has any questions or if you are confused about anything, feel free to ask right now. Uh, otherwise, let's actually, there's something else I wanted to quickly touch on. So here's there's self determination right there. And Annie talked about it. This is really one of the ways we see ourselves becoming self-determined is by reconnecting and healing those relationships with the land. And this is how we do that. This is a picture of camas root and camas flower, and that's the plant that I'm interested in studying. It's just a beautiful lily species, and is really important for food for the people. And here's another picture. It's just get these brilliant yellow anthers, and its growth form is really pretty, especially when you see a whole field of it. It looks like a, like a little lake. And here's another really important plant. Does
1: anybody know what this plant is? Boy,
0: it's the state flower of Montana, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So it's so probably the only one. Okay, so this is Bitterroot. Um, this is what my our people were named after, were the Bitterroot Salish. Um, We have a creation story of the bitter roots um, that ended up feeding our people in a time of famine. Um, And then so we we eat the roots. Uh, It's very bitter. (laughs) The name is. Uh, and so, yeah. So, uh, this is one of the ways that our community really is in touch with the cultures. We have a Bitteroo dig every single year, where the community goes out. Um, it's decided by a woman when it's ready to be picked, just like the story of how it was created. Um, and so, it's it's kind of our little step every year um, towards being self-determined.
0: And so, it's not, yeah. It's not just about the plants. It's about those stories, and it's about bringing back the language and. And going back out and rebuilding those relationships with these plants, and not just the plants, but those places that those plants grow—that's really, really important. And Keith Basso talks; he has a whole book about connecting the place. And he's an anthropologist or an archaeologist down in Arizona. Is that right?
1: In New
0: Mexico. New Mexico. He's a beautiful, poetic writer, and is one of the few books that seem to really understand the significance of places for indigenous people. And so it's not just the plant, but where you get it from. That's very, very important. Okay. So, I think we're out of time, maybe? Yeah, this, um, this, this is just a reminder, mental note, to just think about a lot of this stuff and remember the holistic nature of what we're trying to tell you and the messages we're giving. And just try to think, how do you fit into the bigger picture? I mean, what are you going to offer the world? Because everybody has a unique thing. You, each one of you has something unique to you, something very special that you can do that nobody else can do. It's, maybe it's just the way you see the world. Maybe it's the way you solve problems. Maybe it's just your unique take on reality or you, your unique sense of humor. Whatever it is, it's your responsibility to give that back to the world because that's where it comes from. And I just want to leave you with that message. What are you going to give back to the world, regardless of where you go? Cool. Did you have anything else to add? No. All right. I'm
1: good. Any questions? Before this No? Yeah, we covered a lot. Sorry.
0: (laughs) So if, if anybody is curious about the resources we use to put this together in the different pieces of literature, you can... Get our email from Neil, and we'll send you whatever you're interested in.
1: Oh, yeah. Our podcast is found on pretty much any platform. You know how it's spelled, Indian Science Show. Um, come check it out. This is episode 20, so there's 19 more you can listen to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so you can find us on at co or indianscienceshow.wordpress.com.
1: Or you can find us
0: on iTunes or Stitcher, Podian. Instagram,
1: mm-hmm. Facebook, everywhere. Yeah, uh, what's the other one? That's it. Spotify. Twitter. Twitter. Oh, yeah, we're on Twitter.
0: Uh, We probably won't answer you on there, but we're on there. So thank you for joining us.